hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Margaret G. Robb of Tippecanoe County presiding with the Honorable Cale J. Bradford of Marion County and the Honorable Dana J. Kennedy of Grant County. Good morning. This is in the matter of Singleton versus the state of Indiana. Mr. Rose, you've asked to reserve five minutes? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And Ms. Orr, I assume you're not going to participate in the argument itself, correct? Okay. You may be heard. Thank you, Your Honor. Council for the State, honorable members of the panel, and if it may please the court, I have reserved five minutes for a rebuttal. David Singleton is in prison convicted of a crime for which he pled guilty to, but wishes to take the trial. This was not Mr. Singleton's first involvement with the criminal justice system, but this was the first time that he ever tried to reverse course from a negotiated plea agreement and take his case to trial. He was treading in rare, unknown waters and sank. Did he read the plea agreement beforehand? That's my understanding, Your Honor. Was he asked whether he read it? I believe he was, according was to the transcript. Was he asked whether he understood it? Yes, Your Honor. That's was he my asked whether it was voluntary? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And uh, how long was it before he decided to change course? What was the time frame before he first sought a belated appeal? It was approximately a month, Your Honor. It was in between his guilty plea hearing and his sentencing hearing. Well, I know he attempted to withdraw his plea and that was denied all right and then correct. he was sentenced but then he didn't appeal right away correct all right and that's why we're all here absolutely as i understand it anyways thanks yes. and then how long a time expired from the time that he was sentenced until the time he first sought a, a, bel a belated appeal i suppose when i said change course you're correct he did <laughs> make that known earlier but it, in, the, in this particular action yes your honor and i apologize i misunderstood your initial question no no i understand okay uh he first elected to uh, pursue the belated appeal when he first learned of it from a fellow inmate at the miami correctional facility ronnie mills i would refer you to his affidavit as western mr singleton's affidavit containing the record that was approximately 10 and a half months after his sentencing at which time unbeknownst to mr singleton he learned hey you can appeal your uh, denied motion um, to withdraw your guilty plea at which time you indicated this wasn't uh, so to speak his first rodeo had he ever appealed a prior case no my understanding is that he had never appealed what did his plea agreement stay about appealing there was a creech waiver contained therein judge that he waived his right to a sentencing challenge on direct appeal and of course he waived his right to a challenge of his conviction by pleading guilty however this was a very rare and um, circumstance where there is an exception to the general rule regarding the appealability of a conviction here by uh, the, there's a, this carve out for a denied motion to withdraw a guilty plea he was unknown to that that is a rare circumstance now I said that he was trading these unknown borders this appeal seeks to give Mr. Singleton the belated appeal life raft provided to eligible defendants by post-conviction rule 2 that's the relief that he is due 
Now, in 2020, to summarize the facts, Mr. Singleton had a brief relationship with Ashley Hoffman, whom he met while living in Fort Wayne. It did not go well. One day upset, he went to her home, forced his way in, confronted her about some missing money, and then left. Afterwards, law enforcement responded, spoke with Ms. Hoffman, who reported pain in various body parts. Afterwards, Mr. Singleton was charged with burglary and two counts of domestic violence as a felony. A local defense attorney was appointed, and as we've noted, three months later, a plea agreement was reached, whereby he would plead guilty only to the Berkeley charge, but sentencing would be left to the trial court's discretion. After he pled guilty and before sentencing, as we've noted, Mr. Singleton filed a verified written motion to withdraw his guilty plea. After hearing it was denied, just before he was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Afterwards, Mr. Singleton did not file a notice to appeal within 30 days. That was not his fault. When he learned months later that he could have appealed, he acted diligently to restore his right to appeal. His petition for leave to file a belated appeal was summarily denied. He filed a motion to correct error, which was also summarily denied, which brings us to this point for de novo review. Here, the facts establishing his lack of fault and diligence are indivisibly intertwined just like those in our Supreme Court's very recent opinion in LaShore v. State. Like in LaShore, it was not Mr. Singleton's fault because he received inaccurate advisements. Was his attorney uh, called at the hearing uh, before the trial court on, on, on the, this issue? On the belated appeal mm -hmm. motion? There was no hearing. It was a summary denial. Did he have an affidavit from his current attorney? He did not. Did oh. his attorney <coughs> know that he was raising this? Was he? That I don't know. The record is, is blank as to that, that point. What was the evidence before the court when he asked to withdraw through affidavits as opposed to just a pleading? Uh, Judge, I'm sorry if I misunderstood the question. Are you asking as to what evidence was before the court when he filed his motion to withdraw the guilty plea yes. or the blade appeal? Either one. Okay, starting first at the motion to withdraw the guilty plea, the underlying issues. What he had, the judge had before him was Mr. Singleton's statement. There was a brief hearing on the record before at his sentencing hearing. Right. The judge took that up first. So he had Mr. Singleton's statement and the content of the motion itself. Regarding the belated appeal motion, there was an affidavit attached to that, which was the affidavit of Ronnie Mills, a fellow inmate at the Miami Correctional Facility where Mr. Singleton is housed. But nothing from his attorney that he told him he didn't have a right to appeal? Correct. What we have before the court is uncontroverted affidavit. Now, granted, the court Well, can, uncontroverted because you didn't get the person who might have controverted it. Yes, Your Honor. There is no affidavit from Ryan Lackey. That was his trial counsel. There's, that is not in the record. However, the state also had an opportunity by a local prosecutor to obtain an affidavit from Mr. Lackey to controvert Mr. Mills' affidavit or Mr. Singleton's affidavit and elected not to. So, I, again... I suppose it but wouldn't be in the record, but... You think it's the same guy in the, in the penitentiary that told both LaShore and your client that they had a right to appeal? That's the facts in the record, Your Honor, is that, hey, Ronnie Mills was literally handcuffed to David Singleton before judge, um, the trial court judge here, and then later they came into contact with one another approximately 10 months later at the Miami Correctional Facility for Mr. Singleton before two of his turn of events. Well, I think that in LaShore, that's what they claim happened as well. Yes, uh, yeah, that's that's... I was Why? just wondering if it's the same guy telling everybody about their appellate rights. Oh, I event. see, Your Honor. Yeah. Uh, Did he take the bar? I don't know. He's got <laughs> cottage industry. Right. Sure. And turning to LaShore, you know, that, that's a striking similarity between the LaShore case and Mr. Singleton's case. There are more striking similarities. It began the similarities between the two 
that neither were advised by the trial court that they could appeal what they seek to belatedly appeal. For Mr. LaShore, it was his sentence. Mr. Singleton, it's the denial of his motion to withdraw the guilty plea. Both were misadvised by their counsel. Both were advised that they could not appeal that conviction. And both uh, were later correctly advised, as you know, Judge, by a fellow inmate in prison. That's a striking similarity. Both acted quickly after learning of their forfeited right to appeal. For Mr. LaShore, he was acting pro se. He filed his notice pro se and he filed within 19 days. Mr. Singleton sought out counsel. That was a reasonable decision. It took him 45 days to do that. Neither were young when they learned of their forfeited right to appeal. For Mr. LaShore, he was 41 when he learned from this fellow inmate that he could challenge his sentence on direct appeal. Mr. Singleton, 33 years old. Both have a lengthy criminal record, including prior incarceration and involvements in parole or probation. And the record is absent, again, of any involvement regarding appeals or any reason that he would know of this rare exception. I so thought one of the things that Justice Massa wrote in the uh, majority of, of LaShore was that LaShore had a limited criminal history. As to that, Judge, I would just refer you to the record on that case as reflecting that he had a, a lengthy history. Well, I know the file on your on your client was getting pretty thick. He had 12 misdemeanor convictions and three felonies in two states, not just one, two That's states. Right. And so, as I think Judge Rob pointed out, he he'd attended previous rodeos. Yeah, right? uh, and we, we can see that, yes, his record is what it is, but... This isn't a sentencing challenge like in LaShore. This is that rare situation where we have an exception to the rule. So although he has that record, although he has two states of record, none of which includes any reason that he would have knowledge of, hey, you can challenge this. You can take this up on direct appeal. Well, but if he read his plea agreement that only waived his right to appeal the sentence and said nothing about any other appeals, um, then, and he read it, he understood it, um, what in that would have said you don't have a right to appeal anything else? The plea agreement, the written plea agreement itself, right. no. However, when he came before the trial court. Okay, that, that's not my question. Yes, there's nothing else in the written plea agreement that would that tell would have you. suggested that he was waiving other rights of appeal. I don't want to misstate. I will double check the plea agreement and report back on rebuttal regarding whether or not they're contained it. a whether or not I do not recall offhand whether or not that plea agreement contained hey you're waiving your right to appeal your conviction by pleading guilty well and it wouldn't if it was a plea agreement that only dealt with sentencing since it was pleading guilty yeah so for purposes of this rare exception the appealability of a denial of a motion to withdraw guilty plea on direct appeal no that wasn't in there and no there wasn't anything to tell Mr. Singleton hey you're not waiving that right but again this is a rare circumstance so when he came before the trial court judge at his guilty plea, that's where he was advised, hey, you have a right to uh, appeal a conviction if you went to trial. By pleading guilty, you're waiving that right. So on both ends, in the written plea agreement and his advisements in court, he's told you're at the end of the road. And then most importantly, immediately after he has been sentenced, his motion is denied, his, he had a motion to continue that was denied, and then he's sentenced. At that moment, he's sitting there, Right after he's been sentenced to 14 years in prison, he asked his attorney, what can I do? Help me, what can I do? And his attorney tells him, I'm sorry, your only relief here is a sentencing modification in five to six years. Mr. Singleton went away to prison, having been told and reasonably relying upon that advice, I'm done, I'm stuck. 
for five or six years. However, it was just like in LaShore, only until this fortuitous interaction with Ronnie Mills at the correctional facility that he is told, no, you can restore this right, and he moved quickly. Well, LaShore, by the way, I'm reading the opinion here, and it says uh, that he had limited contact with the legal system and no experience with pellet law many rules, or at least that's what Judge Weissman wrote in the dissent in that case that they quote in the Supreme Court's opinion. In addition, appears in LaShore, uh, LaShore was given mistaken advice by his public defender. In your situation, it's a non-advice with the I will contend, Judge, that it is a, a, a mistaken advice because he's told, he asked generally, what can I do? And he's told not that he can appeal this denial, but the only thing he could do is to seek a sentence modification in five to six years. Okay, go ahead. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Now, we've talked about the similarities between LaShore and Mr. Singleton. The differences are also telling. Now, the overall delay is much different. For Mr. LaShore, 22 years between his conviction and sentence and the time that he files his motion for uh, belated appeal. Mr. Singleton, one year. The initial filing delay, Mr. LaShore, two years. That was a time that not addressed in general in the opinion that we're talking about here, but notable nonetheless. And a distinction between Mr. LaShore and Mr. Singleton, the del initial delay between Mr. LaShore's sentence and the first challenge that he brought by way of PC1, a post-conviction rule one challenge, was two years. Here, Mr. Singleton beat that in half. He filed in right at a year between he, when his motion to withdraw the guilty plea is denied and when he files his initial motion to withdraw, excuse me, motion to, uh, for related appeal of that denial. That's similar and even um, more supported by this court's other panel's decisions in prior cases such as Haddock and Fields that are cited in the briefing. Now, one thing I'd uh, like to point out, the state heavily relies upon this uh, court's uh, finding in Rick's an opinion there from 2009. However, we keep talking about the advisements. Ricks is very distinguishable from here, as Ricks was advised at his guilty plea hearing of his right to appeal whatever sentence the trial court imposed. Here, Mr. Singleton received no such advisement that, hey, you're going to prison, you're sentenced to 14 years, but by the way, you can challenge the denial of this motion to withdraw guilty plea. Now, like in LaShore, Mr. Singleton made a sensible and rational decision to rely upon his counsel's mistaken advice. That is why, just like in LaShore, Mr. Singleton's facts are indivisibly intertwined between the mistaken advice, the misadvice, and when he is later informed by a fellow inmate, hey, you can challenge this, and both of them move quickly. So in Machinic, which LaShore discusses at length, the factors regarding diligence that are addressed, the overall passage of time, whether or not the petitioner was aware of his relevant facts and the degree to which they're attributable to other parties. All these weigh Mr. Singleton's uh, favor. For instance, the attributable to other parties here clearly, just like in LaShore, Mr. Singleton was relying upon his counsel's misadvice, the trial court's non-advisement, and then here he's unaware. There's nothing in the record to say that he would be aware of his right to restore or to appeal the denial of the motion to withdraw guilty plea until Mr. Mills tells him later. And then lastly, the overall passage of time as noted was brief, very brief in comparison to such Haddock, Fields, and LaShore. Now, one thing that 
should be taken into consideration too. It's equal factor, of course, is Mr. Singleton's education. Um, Mr. Singleton, yeah, admittedly has some higher education, but just like we wouldn't go to a doctor to represent us on a murder case, we, Mr. Singleton here, uh, didn't have any education that would bolster up his ability to pro se challenge and to know better. I see my time is up. If there are no more questions, I reserve my five minutes. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. The trial court properly denied Singleton's petition for permission to file a belated notice of appeal because Singleton failed to prove by preponderance of the evidence that he was without fault or that he was diligent in exercising his rights under post-conviction rule two. The evidence before the trial court shows that Singleton knew as of the date of his sentencing hearing that the trial court's discretion in either granting or denying his motion to set aside his guilty plea <coughs> was a separate appealable order that was distinct from the advisement in his plea agreement. And how do we know that? We know that, Your Honor, because it was attached to the memorandum of law and included within the memorandum of law that was attached to his motion to set aside his guilty plea. This court can find that motion at page 71 in the appendix. Uh, attached to the motion to set aside a guilty plea was this memorandum of law, which laid out the entire statutory framework for 353514, including subsection E, which specifically provides that the trial court's discretion in either granting or denying the motion is a separate appealable order uh, that the moving party may appeal. So Singleton knew as of the date of the sentencing hearing, the day he filed this motion with the court. Do we know if he received that, a copy of that? Did it go to him as well as to his attorney? It was his motion, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, and so it was a, a memorandum of law attached to the motion oh, he I thought filed. You it was attached with the order, I'm sorry. No, yes, yeah, so, so, so we know that Singleton knew as of the date of his, his sentencing hearing that this was a separate appealable issue. And so at that point in time, he had 30 days, as every other defendant in Indiana has under Indiana Appellate Rule 9, in which to perfect his appeal. Singleton failed to do so, and in failing to do so, he forfeited his right to appeal on those grounds. If that was attached to his memorandum, did the court ask any questions about that other than the general questions about understanding what he was doing? No, Your Honor, the court did not. Um, we do know from the guilty plea colloquy at, at the time in which he entered into his plea agreement that the trial court did discuss the fact that he was waiving his right to appeal his sentence pursuant to his plea agreement. Uh, but the evidence presented to the trial court below through this memorandum of law attached to his motion to withdrawal shows that he knew it was a separate appealable basis. And, and Singleton's evidence to the contrary, where he claims that he was misadvised by his counsel, is not credible. Um, because we are in a post-conviction proceeding, this court starts with the strong presumption that counsel rendered adequate, competent legal advice. Um, that presumption continues on to the fact that Singleton failed to provide an affidavit from his attorney the only other person who would have corroborated his claim that he was given bad advice. And because he failed to provide that affidavit to the court below, this court may presume that Ryan Lackey's affidavit would not have helped Singleton. He would not have corroborated Singleton or Ronnie Miles's claims. Um, and then we go to the fantastical nature of Ronnie Miles's affidavit, and that Ronnie Miles claimed to have been handcuffed to Singleton in the inmate box. He claims to have overheard what would otherwise be a private and privileged communication between Singleton and his attorney. He claims to have kept all of that at the forefront of his mind for over a year until he just so happened to see uh, David Singleton at the Miami Correctional Facility and approached him with knowledge of post-conviction rule two. So have you ever been to a busy trial court that handles <laughs> criminal cases? I have. Busy docket? Yes. Have you ever seen them all cuffed together in the jury box as they take one out? To because the lockup's too crowded, so they're all cuffed there together and can talk to these things. And have you ever been to the back of a trial court where 
uh, two attorneys are trying to advise their their clients at the same time. I mean, this scenario is not fantastical based on sums observations of practice all right sure your honor i, I was a, a deputy prosecutor in madison county for about three or four years um in, in how we did it in madison county is our inmates were not handcuffed to one another they were certainly handcuffed don't get me wrong on that um, but they were not handcuffed together or brought together if an attorney was wishing to speak to their client yeah. well i'm not himself. saying it's good practice it's to do what i described practice, i agree right. so but the, this was a, a credibility determination that the trial court can make below and perhaps it's possible that the trial court in looking <clears> at this realized that allen county inmates are certainly handcuffed but they're not handcuffed together or we have plenty of rooms in the back where an attorney can pull their client aside by themselves so that they can in engage in this privileged private communication without Ronnie Miles in the room uh, listening and taking notes as to what has occurred. Do we actually know if Miles was there, in fact? We do not, Your Honor. And that's another credibility determination that the trial court may have been able to make below. Um, the trial court was in the best position to gauge the, the credibility of the affiants. Um, so it's possible he knew something about Ronnie Miles that that's not before this court today. Um, I can say to Judge Bradford's question earlier that Ronnie Miles is not the same defendant uh, or inmate who approached. Um, I've been wondering that since I read this opinion on Tuesday. Right. You know? um, I also was wondering that. I thought maybe Ronnie needed a little bit of extra income and that he was reaching out to people in the prison. Um, but it was a different defendant. I guess that does take me to LaShore um, as we were instructed to be prepared to discuss. And that LaShore is distinguishable from Singleton's case. Uh, LaShore, it, it was significant in LaShore that LaShore was one of the defendants that was involved in this pre and post Collins shift in the law. Um, so I think that in, in that regard, it's distinguishable from Singleton's case because he wasn't impacted by this seismic shift in 2004, um, where it split from an open plea agreement must be challenged under post-conviction relief to direct appeal. So there was, as the, as the court in the shore mentions, this universe of petitioners that were sort of uh, treated differently in that context. I think it's also interesting to note that in the shore, we were dealing with a misadvisement and a misadvisement that he had proof occurred. Um, so he was able to submit a letter from the state PD's office, specifically providing him with inaccurate information, where Singleton here provides only his, his affidavit with no affidavit from the actual person who could corroborate, that being Ryan Lackey. Um, Haddock and Fields similarly dealt with misadvisements. Um, and so Singleton's case does not deal with a misadvisement. He had the information in front of him. He needed only to have acted upon it. Going back to Singleton's burden when he filed his... Uh this petition um, by a preponderance of evidence is ever so slight. It's just over the 50-yard line. That's correct, Your Honor. Greater yeah. weight of the evidence. Mm -hmm. and, and then one of our cherished rights is due process. So when you shut out his right to due process, um, that is not allowing him to at least be heard on appeal, uh, coupled with this, this very light burden of proof and then, and by the way, LaShore waited 20, 21 years, and this is 10 months. What the heck? Why not just give the, the defendant his appeal? Well, I think, Your Honor, he had, his, he, he had his right for his day in court. Indiana Appellate Rule 9 sets forth that he has 30 days in which to perfect his appeal. If he does not take advantage of that rule, which this court and our Supreme Court have promulgated in order to ensure uh, the, the fairness of, of justice and finality of judgments for victims, his failure to take advantage of that 30 days forfeits his right, unless he can show these extraordinary circumstances under post-conviction rule two, or some of the equitable factors that LaShore looks at, like age, education, and familiarity with the criminal justice system. And Singleton hasn't met that burden of showing that he is this unique case 
to which he otherwise should be circumvent the ordinary rule that we hold other defendants to in Indiana. Is LaShore's background, education and, and background uh, with the justice system in that case, is that similar to the background of Mr. Singleton in this case? No, Your Honor. Uh, the court was specific to note that LaShore was 19 at the time he entered into his agreement, uh, that he did not have an extensive education, and that he was not familiar with the criminal justice system. Whereas Singleton, in this case, was 32 years old at the time of sentencing. Um, he was very familiar with the criminal justice system, having had 12 prior misdemeanors, three prior felonies. He was a multi-state offender. He was on probation in two different cause numbers at the time he was sentenced, um, and he was fairly educated. And these equitable factors really turn on a consideration of whether the the age the, the tender age maybe somebody inexperienced or somebody who's not as mature um, would not advocate for their own rights whereas we know that singleton was an advocate for his own rights we have uh, on at least two occasions at the sentencing hearing him standing up himself uh in directing the court to consider the fact that his attorney may may or may not have done something that was not in his best interest so we know that singleton is an advocate for his own rights so it sets him apart from somebody who might be 19 or somebody of a lower iq who would with blind faith rely on a misadvisement from their attorney whereas here we have singleton being experienced and we know that he had the information in front of him had he just looked down to take advantage of it in singleton however the judge did not allow him a continuance to get his witnesses there for sentencing. That's correct. So Honor. how can we say he had his right to be heard his day in court? Well, the, trial, the trial court was specific in, in advising Singleton and Singleton's counsel that tell me what they would have said. Tell me that you're a good guy. Tell me that grandma, that you take care of grandma every Tuesday. Uh, tell me that you're active in your <coughs> church. Singleton failed to provide any of the evidence that he believed his family would have come forward with as a show of support. And so the court noted, I note that you would have had attorneys here, or attorneys, you would have had character witnesses here in your support. I'm going to take what you say to me as true. Singleton failed to provide any of that evidence to the court, despite the court giving him an opportunity to do so. So if there are no further questions, Your Honor, uh, the state would respectfully request this court affirm the trial court's denial of Singleton's petition for permission to file a belated notice of appeal. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. You may conclude. Thank you, Judge. Well, again, the factors of fault and diligence are intertwined here. Let's parse it out for just a second. Fault. The lack of the trial court's advisement that, hey, Mr. Singleton, while I'm denying your motion to withdraw your guilty plea, please be advised that that's a right, that that's a denial that is a final judgment that you can appeal. Where is he required to do that? He is not required. And the court knows that in LaShore, in the majority's opinion. However, the majority also cites that the lack of that advisement is sufficient and or can be sufficient to establish lack of fault. So that alone, let's can be. I'm Tabri. Can be. Can be. Yes, can be. Well, that that's that's what it is. However, that alone can support the lack of fault, regardless of whether or not Mr. Lackey gave him a copy of this memorandum, which by all, it's signed by Mr. Lackey. Mr. Lackey prepared that. That wasn't Mr. Singleton's uh, hand handwritten motion this wasn't like he filed it he looked at the statute and he prepared that memorandum that was prepared by his counsel was he, there any claim that he didn't see it there's nothing in the record to say that he didn't see it there's also nothing in the record to say that he received a copy or reviewed that memorandum which was attached to the motion with mr lackey so that is an absent fact and it's his burden correct it is his burden by a preponderance of the evidence as noted earlier we're just talking just over that 50 percent threshold and again, the state could have 
brought in. The state responded to the motion to correct errors. It didn't respond to the motion for a belated appeal. But again, it's your burden. It is our burden. Uh, and to that point about whether or not that's a key issue here, uh, uh, absence of Mr. Lackey's affidavit, we maintain that that was an unnecessary element. The state would point to, hey, there, there can be an adverse inference here because you don't have an affidavit from trial counsel. However, that's generally in addressing, look, was there some reasonable strategy on the part of trial counsel for whatever decision they made? That would be never a reasonable strategy for trial counsel not to correctly advise their client. So we would say that that argument fails. Well, that, uh, Mr. Singleton testified at his hearing. He did. Correct? All right. So um, in, in uh, LaShore, I think it was just a dis, uh, denial. All right. So your, your, your client had his, his day in court, at least on the motion. All right. And, and part of what I'd like you to respond to would be that, well, as is pointed out, the judge had, was in a best position to assess his credibility and he rejected that credibility, all right? Sure. Uh, or it appears from his ruling that he didn't believe your client's reasoning. And, and you know, some would say you'd be asking us to reweigh the evidence and as case law says, this we will not or cannot do, all right? So how do you, how do you overcome that? First, uh, Your Honor, we're on de novo review here, so you get to look at it fresh and new. Not the facts. We have to accept them as found by the trial court. Sure. But here, the, the later motion to withdraw the, uh, excuse me, the, the motion for belated appeal, that's what's before this court, not the merits of the underlying motion to uh, set aside the guilty plea, to withdraw that. So if we're talking just about what we're here on today, the motion for belated appeal, that record is absent because the trial court summarily denied it without explanation. Did that with the motion for bladed appeal, did that with the motion to correct error. So this panel respectfully would not look to say, oh, this was what uh, the but trial court said. Those are all relevant issues as to whether or not a bladed appeal is proper. I'm terribly sorry, Your Honor. Aren't those all related to whether or not a bladed appeal meets the criteria and is proper? Proper under the post-conviction rules, Your mm -hmm. Honor. Here, a motion to withdraw a guilty plea is inseparable from a challenge to that conviction. Here, because the trial court judge accepted the guilty plea, they are one and the same. He is appealing under the rule that he, he is eligible to uh, seek post-conviction to relief. Now, one other thing on, to clarify for the court and to a concession was that there's a distinction between Mr. LaShore and Mr. Singleton's record. They are both um, there. Mr. LaShore's was largely a juvenile record. He was young. He was 19, as the state points out but there was that criminal record. But again, the similarity is that there was nothing about their involvement with the criminal justice system that would say, hey, light bulb, you should know better. You should appeal this right now within 30 days. And then the totality of the misadvice here, again, goes back to that interconnection between the fault and diligence. We can't parse them out, ultimately. Just like in LaShore, Mr. Singleton was misadvised not only by uh, his counsel, but the trial court here does not advise him that you could appeal this. That explains the lack of fault. He ultimately later runs into Mr. Mills, who tells him, well, you were wrong, your counsel was wrong, and you can restore this right. We respectfully submit that that right should be restored to Mr. Singleton. Thank you. Thank you very much.
and that concludes the official part of the oral argument. I would like to thank um, so many people who helped make this possible. Dr. Bauti, did I pronounce that correctly? Okay. <laughs> Dean Elisa Joe Spray Hall, Judge Roach, um, and uh, Clifford Jack, the department chair, who uh, helped arrange all of this and again make it possible. I'd like to thank the judges that are here. Y'all wave up your hands because that's where most of your justices getting taken place here in Tippecanoe County and um, Montgomery and any of the surrounding counties. Also like to thank Sarah Demick, president of the Tippecanoe County Bar for being here. Uh, and we have some uh, Court of Appeals groupies who come to our oral arguments, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Fuchs. And we'd like to thank the state police as we like to say, may this be the most arduous thing you do all day today, but we appreciate that. Again, take nothing from the questions we ask. We do it to encourage conversation. Under normal circumstances, we would conclude and go back to our robing room and talk about what we've just heard. You've had an opportunity to hear excellent arguments. We're going to open it up for Q&A. I know you'd like to ask us questions about the case, but that's the one thing you can't ask us. Otherwise, you can ask us whatever you want, and the lawyers are uh, available to be questioned as well, but you can't ask them questions about the case either. So we will have an opinion in due course. And with that, thank you very much. You may rise. All rise. This court is now adjourned.